Introduction to Catherine de' Medici by Honor de Balzac. Translated by Catherine Prescott Warman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There is a general cry of paradox when scholars, struck by some historical error, attempt to correct it. But for whoever studies modern history to its depths, it is plain that historians are privileged liars, who lend their pen to popular beliefs, precisely as the newspapers of the day, or most of them, express the opinions of their readers. Historical independence has shown itself much less among lay writers than among those of the Church. It is from the Benedictines, one of the glories of France, that the purest light has come to us in the matter of history, so long, of course, as the interests of the order were not involved. About the middle of the 18th century, great and learned controversialists struck by the necessity of correcting popular errors endorsed by historians made and published to the world very remarkable works. Thus Monsieur de Lannoy, nicknamed the Expeller of Saints, made cruel war upon the saints surreptitiously smuggled into the church. Thus the emulators of the Benedictines, the members, too little recognised, of the Académie des Inscriptions en Belles Lettres, began on many obscure historical points a series of monographs, which are admirable for patience, erudition, and logical consistency. Thus Voltaire, for a mistaken purpose and with ill-judged passion, frequently cast the light of his mind on historical prejudices. Diderot undertook in this direction a book, much too long, on the era of imperial Rome. If it had not been for the French Revolution, criticism applied to history might then have prepared the elements of a good and true history of France, the proofs of which had long been gathered by the Benedictines. Louis XVI, a just mind, himself translated the English work in which Walpole endeavoured to explain Richard III, a work much talked of in the last century. Why do personages so celebrated as kings and queens, so important as the generals of armies, become objects of horror or derision? Half the world hesitates between the famous song on Marlborough and the history of England, and it also hesitates between history and popular tradition as to Charles IX. At all epochs, when great struggles take place between the masses and authority, the populace creates for itself an Ogre-esque personage, if it is allowable to coin a word to convey a just idea. Thus, to take an example in our own time, if it had not been for the memorial of St. Helena and the controversies between the royalists and the Bonapartists, there was every probability that the character of Napoleon would have been misunderstood few more Abbé de Pradis, a few more newspaper articles, and from being an emperor, Napoleon would have turned into an ogre. How does error propagate itself? The mystery is accomplished under our very eyes, without our perceiving it. No one suspects how much solidity the art of printing has given both to the envy which pursues greatness, and to the popular ridicule which fastens a contrary sense on a grand historical act. Thus, the name of the Prince de Polignac is given throughout the length and breadth of France to all bad horses that require whipping, and who knows how that will affect the opinion of the future as to the coup d'etat of the Prince de Polignac himself, in consequence of a whim of Shakespeare. Or perhaps it may have been a revenge like that of Beaumarchais on Burgas, Burgas. Falstaff is in England a type of the ridiculous. 
His very name provokes laughter. He is the king of clowns. Now, instead of being enormously pot-bellied, absurdly amorous, vain, drunken, old, and corrupted, Falstaff was one of the most distinguished men of his time, a knight of the garter, holding a high command in the army. At the accession of Henry V, Sir John Falstaff was only thirty-four years old. This general, who distinguished himself at the Battle of Agincourt, and there took prisoner the Duc d'Alencon, captured in 1420, the town of Montereau, which was vigorously defended. Moreover, under Henry VI, he defeated 10,000 French troops with 1,500 weary and famished men. So much for war. Now let us pass to literature and see our own Rabelais, a sober man who drank nothing but water, but is held to be, nevertheless, an extravagant lover of good cheer and a resolute drinker. A thousand ridiculous stories are told about the author of one of the finest books in French literature, Pantocrail. Atina, friend of Titian and the Voltaire of his century, has in our day a reputation the exact opposite of his works and of his character, a reputation which he owes to a grossness of wit in keeping with the writings of his age, when broad farce was held in honour and queens and cardinals wrote tales which would be called in these days licentious. One might go on multiplying such instances indefinitely. In France, and that too, during the most serious epoch of modern history, no woman, unless it be Brunerot or Fredegonde, has suffered from popular error so much as Catherine de' Medici. Whereas Marie de' Medici, all of whose actions were prejudicial to France, has escaped the shame which ought to cover her name. Marie de' Medici wasted the wealth amassed by Henry the Fourth. She never purged herself of the charge of having known of the king's assassination intimate was de Pagnon, who did not ward off Ravalec's blow, and who was proved to have known the murderer personally for a long time. Marie's conduct was such that she forced her son to banish her from France, where she was encouraging her other son, Gaston, to rebel, and the victory Rochelieu at last won over her on the day of the dupes was due solely to the discovery the cardinal made, and imparted to Louis Thirteenth of secret documents relating to the death of Henri the Fourth. Catherine de' Medici, on the contrary, saved the crown of France. She maintained the royal authority in the midst of circumstances under which more than one great prince would have succumbed. Having to make head against factions and ambitions like those of the Guises and the House of Bourbon, against men such as the two cardinals of Lorraine, the two Balafre and the two Condé, against the queen Jean d'Albret, Henri IV, the Connetable de Montmorency, Calvin, the three colonies, Theodore de Bez, she needed to possess and to display the rare qualities and precious gifts of a statesman under the mocking fire of the Calvinist press. Those facts are incontestable. Therefore, to whosoever burrows into the history of the sixteenth century in France, the figure of Catherine de' Medici will seem like that of a great king. When calumny is once dissipated by facts, recovered with difficulty from among the contradictions of pamphlets and false anecdotes, all explains itself to the fame of this extraordinary woman, who had none of the weaknesses of her sex, who lived chaste amid the license of the most dissolute court in Europe, and who, in spite of her lack of money, erected noble public buildings, as if to repair the loss caused by the iconoclasms of the Calvinists, who did as much harm to art as to the body politic. Hemmed in, between the Guises who claimed to be the heirs of Charlemagne, 
and a factious young branch who sought to screen the treachery of the connetable de bourbon behind the throne catherine forced to combat heresy which was seeking to annihilate the monarchy without friends aware of treachery among the leaders of the catholic party foreseeing a republic in the calvinist party catherine employed the most dangerous but the surest weapon of public policy craft she resolved to trick and so defeat successfully the guises who were seeking the ruin of the house of valois the bourbon who sought the crown and the reformers the radicals of those days who dreamed of an impossible republic like those of our time who have however nothing to reform consequently so long as she lived the valois kept the throne of france the great historian of that time de Thieu, knew well the value of this woman when on hearing of her death he exclaimed it is not a woman it is monarchy itself that has died catherine had in the highest degree the sense of royalty and she defended it with admirable courage and persistency the reproaches which calvinist writers had cast upon her are to her glory she incurred them by reason only of her triumphs could she placed as she was triumph otherwise than by craft the whole question lies there as for violence that means is one of the most disputed questions of public policy in our time it has been answered on the place louis the fifteenth where they have now set up an egyptian stone as if to obliterate regicide and offer a symbol of the system of materialistic policy which governs us it was answered at the calm and at the abbaye answered on the steps of saint roche answered once more by the people against the king before the louvre in eighteen thirty as it has since been answered by lafayette's best of all possible republics against the republican insurrection at somri and the rue transnonain all power legitimate or illegitimate must defend itself when attacked but the strange thing is that whether people are held heroic in their victory over the nobility power is called murderous in its duel with the people if it succumbs after its appeal to force power is then called imbecile the present government is attempting to save itself by two laws from the same evil charles x tried to escape by two ordinances is it not a bitter derision is craft permissible in the hands of power against craft may it kill those who seek to kill it the massacres of the revolution have replied to the massacres of saint bartholomew the people becoming king have done against the king and the nobility what the king and the nobility did against the insurgents of the sixteenth century therefore the popular historians who know very well that in a like case the people will do the same thing over again have no excuse for blaming catherine de medici and charles the ninth all power said casimir Perrier, on learning what power ought to be, is a permanent conspiracy. We admire the antisocial maxims put forth by daring writers. Why then this disapproval, which in France attaches to all social truths when boldly proclaimed? This question will explain in itself alone historical errors. Apply the answer to the destructive doctrines which flatter popular passions and the conservative doctrines which repress the mad efforts of the people and you will find the reason of the unpopularity and also the popularity of certain personages lobardemont and laffemas were like some men of today, devoted to the defence of power in which they believed 
soldiers or judges, they all obeyed royalty. In these days, Dorte would be dismissed for having misunderstood the orders of the ministry, but Charles X left him governor of a province. The power of the many is accountable to no one. The power of one is compelled to render account to its subjects, to the great as well as to the small. Catherine, like Philip II and the Duke of Alba, like the Guises and Cardinal Granvay, saw plainly the future that the Reformation was bringing upon Europe. She and they saw monarchies, religion, authority shaken. Catherine wrote from the cabinet of the kings of France a sentence of death to that spirit of inquiry which then began to threaten modern society, a sentence which Louis Fourteenth ended by executing. Revocation of the Edict of Nantes was an unfortunate measure, only so far as it caused the irritation of all Europe against Louis the Fourteenth. At another period, England, Holland, and the Holy Roman Empire would not have welcomed banished Frenchmen and encouraged revolt in France. Why refuse, in these days, to the majestic adversary of the most barren of heresies, the grandeur she derived from the struggle itself? Calvinists have written much against the craftiness of Charles the Ninth. But travel through France, see the ruins of noble churches, estimate the fearful wounds given by the religionists to the social body, learn what vengeance they inflicted, and you will ask yourself, as you deplore the evils of individualism, the disease of our present France, the germ of which is in the questions of liberty of conscience then agitated, you will ask yourself, I say, on which side were the executioners. There are, unfortunately, as Catherine herself says in the third division of this study of her career, in all ages hypocritical writers always ready to weep over the fate of two hundred scoundrels killed necessarily. Caesar, who tried to move the Senate to pity the attempt of Catiline, might perhaps have got the better of Cicero, could he have had an opposition and its newspapers at his command. Another consideration explains the historical and popular disfavour in which Catherine is held. The opposition in France has always been Protestant, because it has had no policy but that of negation. It inherits the theories of Lutherans, Calvinists, and Protestants on the terrible words liberty, tolerance, progress, and philosophy. Two centuries have been employed by the opponents of power in establishing the doubtful doctrine of the libre arbitre, liberty of will. Two other centuries were employed in developing the first corollary of liberty of will, namely, liberty of conscience. Our century is endeavouring to establish the second, namely, political liberty. Placed between the ground already lost and the ground still to be defended, Catherine and the Church proclaimed the salutary principle of modern societies, una fides, unus dominus, using their power of life and death upon the innovators. Though Catherine was vanquished, succeeding centuries have proved her justification. The product of liberty, will, religious liberty, and political liberty, not, observe this, to be confounded with civil liberty, is the France of today. What is the France of 1840? A country occupied exclusively with material interests, without patriotism, without conscience, where power has no vigour, where elections, the fruit of liberty of will and political liberty lifts to the surface none but commonplace men, where brute force is now become a necessity against popular violence, where discussion, spreading into everything, stifles the action of legislative bodies, 
where money rules all questions, where individualism, the dreadful product of the division of property ad infinitum, will suppress the family and devour all, even the nation, which egoism will someday deliver over to invasion. And will say, why not the Tsar? Just as they said, why not the Duc d'Orléans? We don't cling to many things even now, but fifty years hence we shall cling to nothing. Thus, according to Catherine de Medici, and according to all those who believe in a well-ordered society, in social man, the subject cannot have liberty of will, or not to teach the dogma of liberty of conscience, or demand political liberty. But as no society can exist without guarantees granted to the subject against the sovereign, there results for the subject liberties subject to restriction. Liberty? No. Liberties? Yes. Precise and well-defined liberties. That is in harmony with the nature of things. It is assuredly beyond the reach of human power to prevent the liberty of thought, and no sovereign can interfere with money. Great statesmen who were vanquished in the long struggle, it lasted five centuries, recognized the right of subjects to great liberties. But they did not admit their right to publish antisocial thoughts, nor did they admit the indefinite liberty of the subject. To them the word subject and liberty were terms that contradicted each other, just as the theory of citizens being all equal constitutes an absurdity which nature contradicts at every moment. To recognize the necessity of a religion, the necessity of authority, and then relieve people of the right to deny religion, attack its worship, oppose the exercise of power by public expression, communicable and communicated by thought, was an impossibility which the Catholics of the 16th century would not hear of. Alas, the victory of Calvinism will cost France more in the future than it has yet cost her, for religious sects and humanitarian equality-leveling politics are today the tale of Calvinism, and, judging by the mistakes of the present power, its contempt for intellect, its love for material interests, in which it seeks the basis of its support, though material interests are the most treacherous of all supports, we may predict that unless some providence intervenes, the genius of destruction will again carry the day over the genius of preservation. The assailants, who have nothing to lose and all to gain, understand each other thoroughly, whereas their rich adversaries will not make any sacrifice, either of money or self-love, to draw to themselves supporters. The art of printing came to the aid of the opposition begun by the Vaudois and the Albigenses. As soon as human thought, instead of condensing itself, as it was formerly forced to do to remain in communicable form, on a multitude of garments and became, as it were, the people itself. Instead of remaining a sort of axiomatic divinity, there were two multitudes to combat, the multitude of ideas and the multitude of men. The royal power succumbed in that warfare, and we are now assisting in France at its last combination with elements which render its existence difficult, not to say impossible. Power is action, and the elective principle is discussion. There is no policy, no statesmanship possible, where discussion is permanent. Therefore, we ought to recognize the grandeur of the women who had the eyes to see this future and fought it bravely. That the House of Bourbon was able to succeed to the House of Valois, that it found a crown preserved to it, was due solely to Catherine de' Medici. Suppose the second Balafre had lived. No matter how strong the Bernay was, it is doubtful 
whether he could have seized the crown, seeing how dearly the Duc de Mayenne and the remains of the Guise party had sold it to him. The means employed by Catherine, who certainly had to reproach herself for the deaths of Francois II and Charles IX, whose lives might have been saved in time whenever it is observable made the subject of accusations by either the Calvinists or modern historians. Though there was no poisoning, as some grave writers have said, there was other conduct almost as criminal. There is no doubt she hindered Pare from saving one and allowed the other to accomplish his own doom by moral assassination. The sudden death of Francois II and that of Charles IX were no injury to the Calvinists, and therefore the causes of these two events remained in their secret sphere, and were never suspected either by the writers of the people of that day, though not divined, except by de Tue, l'Hôpital, and minds of that calibre, or by the leaders of the two parties who were coveting or defending the throne, and believed such means necessary to their end. Popular songs attacked, strangely enough, Catherine's morals, Everyone knows the anecdote of the soldier who was roasting a goose in the courtyard of the Chateau de Tour during the conference between Catherine and Henri the Fourth, singing as he did so, a song in which the Queen was grossly insulted. Henri the Fourth drew his sword to go out and kill the man, but Catherine stopped him and contented herself with calling from the window to insult her. Eh, but it was Catherine who gave you the goose. Though the executions at Amboise were attributed to Catherine, and though the Calvinists made her responsible for all the inevitable evils of that struggle, it was with her, as it was later with Robespierre, who was still waiting to be justly judged. Catherine was, moreover, rightly punished for a preference for the Duc d'Anjou, to whose interests the two elder brothers were sacrificed. Henri III, like all spoiled children, ended in becoming absolutely indifferent to his mother, and he plunged voluntarily into the life of debauchery which made of him what his mother had made of Charles the Ninth, a husband without sons, a king without heirs. Unhappily, the Duc d'Alençon, Catherine's last male child, had already died a natural death. The last words of the great queen were like a summing up of her lifelong policy, which was moreover so plain in its common sense that all cabinets are seen under similar circumstances to put it in practice. Enough cut off, my son, she said, when Henri the Third came to her deathbed to tell her that the great enemy of the crown was dead. Now peace together. By which she meant that the throne should at once reconcile itself with the house of Lorraine and make use of it as the only means of preventing evil results from the hatred of the Guises, and holding out to them the hope of surrounding the king. But the persistent craft and dissimulation of the woman and the Italian which she had never failed to employ, was incompatible with the debauched life of her son. Catherine de' Medici once dead, the policy of the Valois died also. Before undertaking to write the history of the manners and morals of this period in action, the author of this study has patiently and minutely examined the principal reigns in the history of France, the quarrel of the Burgundians and the Armagnacs, that of the Guises and the Valois, each of which covers a century. His first intention was to write a picturesque history of France. Three women, Isabella of Bavaria, Catherine and Marie de' Medici, hold an enormous place in it, their sway reaching from the 14th to the 17th century, ending in Louis the Fourteenth. Of these three queens, Catherine is the finer and more interesting. Hers was virile power, dishonoured neither by the terrible amours of Isabella, nor by those, even more terrible, though less known, of Marie de' Medici. 
Isabella summoned the English into France against her son and loved her brother-in-law, the Duke d'Orléans. The record of Marie de' Medici is heavier still. Neither had political genius. It was in the course of these studies that the writer acquired the conviction of Catherine's greatness. As he became initiated into the constantly renewed difficulties of her position, he saw with what injustice historians, all influenced by Protestants, had treated this queen. Out of this conviction grew the three sketches which here follow, in which some erroneous opinions formed upon Catherine, also upon the persons who surrounded her and on the events of her time are refuted. If this book is placed among the philosophical studies, it is because it shows the spirit of a time, and because we may clearly see in it the influence of thought. But before entering the political arena, where Catherine will be seen facing the two great difficulties of her career, it is necessary to give a succinct account of her preceding life, from the point of view of impartial criticism, in order to take in as much as possible of this vast and regal existence up to the moment when the first part of the present study begins. Never was there any period, in any land, in any sovereign family, a greater contempt for legitimacy than the famous house of the Medici. On the subject of power, they held the same doctrine now professed by Russia, namely, to whichever head the crown goes, he is the true, the legitimate sovereign. Mirabeau had reason to say there has been but one mesalliance in my family, that of the Medici. For in spite of the paid efforts of genealogists, it is certain that the Medici, before Everardo de Medici, Gonfaloniero of Florence in 1314, were simple Florentine merchants who became very rich. The first personage in this family who occupies an important place in the history of the famous Tuscan Republic is Silvestro de Medici, Gonfaloniero in 1378. This Silvestro had two sons, Cosmo and Lorenzo de Medici. From Cosmo are descended Lorenzo the Magnificent, Duke de Nemours, Duke de Vinot, father of Catherine, Pope Leo X, Pope Clement VII, and Alessandro, not Duke of Florence, as historians call him, but Duke della Citta di Pena, a title given by Pope Clement VII, as a halfway station for that of Grand Duke of Tuscany. From Lorenzo are descended the Florentine Brutus Lorenzino, who killed Alessandro. Cosmo, the first Grand Duke, and all the sovereigns of Tuscany till 1737, at which period the house became extinct. But neither of the two branches, the branch Cosmo and the branch Lorenzo, reigned through their direct and legitimate lines until the close of the 16th century, when the Grand Dukes of Tuscany began to succeed each other peacefully. Alessandro de' Medici, he to whom the title of Duke della Citta de Pena was given, was the son of the Duke de Vino. Catherine's father by a Moorish slave. For this reason, Lorenzino claimed a double right to kill Alessandro, as a usurper in his house, as well as an oppressor of the city. Some historians believe that Alessandro was the son of Clement VII. The fact that led to the recognition of this bastard as chief of the Republic and head of the House of the Medici was his marriage with Margaret of Austria, natural daughter of Charles V. Francesco de' Medici, husband of Bianca Capello, accepted as his son a child of poor parents brought by the celebrated Venetian and, strange to say, Ferdinando, on succeeding Francesco, maintained the substituted child in all his rights. That child, called Antonio de' Medici, was considered during four reigns as belonging to the family. He won the affection of everybody, rendered important services to the family, and died universally regretted. 
Nearly all the first Medici had natural children whose careers were invariably brilliant. For instance, the Cardinal Giulio de Medici, afterwards Pope under the name of Clement VII, was the illegitimate son of Giuliano I. Cardinal Ippolito de Medici was also a bastard and came very near being Pope and the head of the family. Lorenzo II, the father of Catherine, married in 1518 for his second wife, Madeleine de la Tour de Bologna in Avergne, and died April twenty-fifth, 1519, a few days after his wife, who died in giving birth to Catherine. Catherine was therefore orphaned of father and mother as soon as she drew breath. Hence the strange adventures of her childhood, mixed up as they were with the bloody efforts of the Florentines when seeking to recover their liberty from the Medici. The latter, desirous of continuing to reign in Florence, behaved with such circumspection that Lorenzo, Catherine's father, had taken the name of Duke de Bino. At Lorenzo's death, the head of the house of the Medici was Pope Leo X, who sent the illegitimate son of Giuliano, Giulio de' Medici, then cardinal, to govern Florence. Leo X was great-uncle to Catherine, and this cardinal Giulio, afterward Clement VII, was her uncle by the left hand. It was during the siege of Florence, undertaken by the Medici to force their return there, that the Republican Party, not content with having shut Catherine, then nine years old, into a convent after robbing her of all her property, actually proposed, on the suggestion of one named Battista Che, to expose her between two battlements on the walls to the artillery of the Medici. Bernardo Castiglione went further in a council held to determine how matters should be ended. He was of opinion that, so far from returning her to the Pope, as the latter requested, she ought to be given to the soldiers, for dishonour. This will show how all popular revolutions resemble each other. Catherine's subsequent policy, which upheld so firmly the royal power, may well have been instigated in part by such scenes, of which an Italian girl of nine years of age was assuredly not ignorant. The rise of Alessandro de' Medici, to which the bastard Pope Clement VII powerfully contributed, was no doubt chiefly caused by the affection of Charles V for his famous legitimate daughter, Margaret. Thus Pope and Emperor were prompted by the same sentiment. At this epoch, Venice had the commerce of the world. Rome had its moral government. Italy still reigned supreme, though the poets, the generals, the statesmen born to her. At no period of the world's history in any land was there ever seen so remarkable so abundant a collection of men of genius. There were so many, in fact, that even the lesser princes were superior men. Italy was crammed with talent, enterprise, knowledge, science, poesy, wealth and gallantry, all the while torn by intestinal warfare and overrun with conquerors struggling for possession of her finest provinces. When men are so strong, they do not fear to admit their weaknesses. Hence, no doubt, this golden age for bastards. We must, moreover, do the legitimate children of the House of the Medici the justice to say that they were ardently devoted to the glory, power, and increase of wealth of that famous family. Thus, as soon as the Duca della Cite de Pena, son of the Moorish woman, was installed as tyrant of Florence, he espoused the interest of Pope Clement VII and gave a home to the daughter of Lorenzo II, then eleven years of age. When we study the march of events and that of men in this curious 16th century, we ought never to forget that public policy had for its element a perpetual craftiness and a dissimulation which destroyed in all characters the straightforward, upright bearing our imaginations demand of eminent personages. And this, above all, is Catherine's absolution. 
It disposes of the vulgar and foolish accusations of treachery launched against her by the writers of the Reformation. This was the great age of that statesmanship, the code of which was written by Machiavelli as well as by Spinoza, by Hobbes as well as Montesquieu. For the dialogue between Scylla and Eucrates contains Montesquieu's true thought, which his connection with the encyclopedist did not permit him to develop otherwise than as he did. These principles are today the secret law of all cabinets in which plans for the conquest and maintenance of great power are laid. In France we blamed Napoleon when he made use of that Italian genius for craft which was bred in his bone, but in his case it did not always succeed. But Charles V, Catherine, Philip II, and Pope Julius would not have acted otherwise than as he did in the affair of Spain. History in the days when Catherine was born, if judged from the point of view of honesty, would seem an impossible tale. Charles V obliged to sustain Catholicism against the attacks of Luther, who threatened the throne in threatening the tiara, allowed the siege of Rome, and held Pope Clement VII in prison. The same Clement, who had no bitterer enemy than Charles V, courted him in order to make Alessandro de' Medici ruler of Florence, and obtained his favourite daughter for that bastard. No sooner was Alessandro established than he, conjointly with Clement VII, endeavoured to injure Charles V by allying himself with Francois I, King of France, by means of Catherine de Medici. Both of them promised to assist Francois in reconquering Italy. Lorenzino de Medici made himself the companion of Alessandro's debaucheries for the express purpose of finding an opportunity to kill him. Filippo Strozzi, one of the great minds of that day, held this murder in such respect that he swore that his sons should each marry a daughter of the murderer, and each son religiously fulfilled his father's oath, when they might all have made, under Catherine's protection, brilliant marriages, for one was the rival of Doria, the other a marshal of France. Cosmo de' Medici, successor of Alessandro, with whom he had no relationship, avenged the death of that tyrant in the cruelest manner, with a persistency lasting twelve years, during which time his hatred continued keen against the persons who had, as a matter of fact, given him the power. He was eighteen years old when called to the sovereignty. His first act was to declare the rights of Alessandro's legitimate sons, null and void all the while avenging their father's death. Charles V confirmed this disinheriting of his grandsons and recognised Cosmo instead of the son of Alessandro and his daughter Margaret. Cosmo, placed on the throne by Cardinal Chibo, instantly exiled the latter, and the cardinal revenged himself by accusing Cosmo, who was the first grand duke, of murdering Alessandro's son. Cosmo, as jealous of his power as Charles V was of his, abdicated in favour of his son Francesco, after causing the death of his other son, Garcia, to avenge the death of Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici, whom Garcia had assassinated. Cosmo I and his son Francesco, who ought to have been devoted, body and soul, to the House of France, the only power on which they might really have relied, made themselves the lackeys of Charles V and Philip II, and were consequently the secret, base and perfidious enemies of Catherine de' Medici, one of the glories of their house. Such were the leading contradictory and illogical traits, the treachery, knavery, and black intrigues of a single house, that of the Medici. From this sketch we may judge of the other princes of Italy and Europe. All the envoys of Cosmos I to the court of France had in their secret instructions an order to poison Strozzi, Catherine's relation, when he arrived. Charles V had already assassinated three of the ambassadors of Francois I. It was early in the month of October, 1533, that the Duca della Citta de Peña started from 
Florence for Livorno, accompanied by the sole heiress of Lorenzo II, namely Catherine de' Medici. Duke and the Princess of Florence, that was the title by which the young girl, then fourteen years of age, was known, left the city surrounded by a large retinue of servants, officers and secretaries, preceded by armed men and followed by an escort of cavalry. The young princess knew nothing as yet of what her fate was to be, except that the Pope was to have an interview at Livorno with the Duke Alessandro, but her uncle Filippo Strozzi very soon informed her of the future before her. Filippo Strozzi had married Clarice de' Medici, half-sister on the father's side of Lorenzo de' Medici, Duke of Urbino, father of Catherine. This marriage was brought about as much to convert one of the firmest supporters of the popular party to the cause of the Medici as to facilitate the recall of that family, then banished from Florence, never shook the stern champion from his course, though he was persecuted by his own party for making it. In spite of all apparent changes in his conduct, for this alliance naturally affected it somewhat, he remained faithful to the popular party and declared himself openly against the Medici as soon as he foresaw their intention to enslave Florence. This great man even refused the offer of a principality made to him by Leo X. At the time of which we are writing, Filippo Strozzi was a victim to the policy of the Medici, so vacillating in its means, so fixed and inflexible in its object. After sharing the misfortunes and the captivity of Clement VII, when the latter, surprised by the Colonna, took refuge in the castle of Sant'Angelo, Strozzi was delivered up by Clement as a hostage and taken to Naples. As the Pope, when he got his liberty, turned savagely on his enemies, Strozzi came very near losing his life and was forced to pay an enormous sum to be released from a prison where he was closely confined. When he found himself at liberty, he had, with an instinct of kindness natural to an honest man, the simplicity to present himself before Clement VII, who had perhaps congratulated himself on being well rid of him. The Pope had such good cause to blush for his own conduct that he received Strozzi extremely ill. Strozzi thus began early in life his apprenticeship in the misfortunes of an honest man in politics a man whose conscience cannot lend itself to the capriciousness of events, whose actions are acceptable only to the virtuous, and who is therefore persecuted by the world, by the people for opposing their blind passions, by power for opposing its usurpations. The life of such great citizens is a martyrdom in which they are sustained only by the voice of their conscience and an heroic sense of social duty, which dictates their course in all things. There were many such men in the Republic of Florence, all as great as Strozzi, and as able as their adversaries, the Medici, though vanquished by the superior craft and wiliness of the latter. What could be more worthy of admiration than the conduct of the chief of the Patsy at the time of the conspiracy of his house, when, his commerce being at that time enormous, he settled all his accounts with Asia, the Levant, and Europe, before beginning that great attempt, so that, if it failed, his correspondence should lose nothing. The history of the establishment of the House of the Medici in the 14th and 15th centuries is a magnificent tale which still remains to be written, though men of genius have already put their hands to it. It is not the history of a republic, nor of a society, nor of any special civilization. It is the history of statesmen, the eternal history of politics, that of usurpers, that of conquerors. As soon as Filippo Strozzi returned to Florence, he re-established the preceding form of government and ousted Ippolito de' Medici, another bastard, and very Alessandro with whom, at the later period of which we are now writing, he was travelling to Livorno. 
Having completed this change of government, he became alarmed at the evident inconstancy of the people of Florence, and fearing the vengeance of Clement Seventh, went to Lyon to superintend a vast house of business he owned there, which corresponded with other banking houses of his own in Venice, Rome, France, and Spain. Here we find a strange thing. These men who bore the weight of public affairs, and of such a struggle as that with the Medici, not to speak of contentions with their own party, found time and strength to bear the burden of a vast business and all its speculations, also of banks and their complications, which the multiplicity of coinage and their falsification rendered even more difficult than it is in our day. The name banker comes from the banque, anglice bench, upon which the banker sits, and on which he rang the gold and silver pieces to try their quality. End of section one.